This is the Worth Recovery Podcast, featuring women and addiction. Welcome back to another episode of the Worth Recovery Podcast. My name is Amy. I'm your host here. I'm a sex addict and I have been sober since December 2nd of 2012. And I'm excited to bring to you another episode of Worth Reading. Um, This is our series where I share with you some of the books that have significantly impacted my recovery and or have, I mean, that's, that's true significantly impacted my recovery or given me a lot of education about addiction or things like that. So uh, last month we covered Ready to Heal, which is a fabulous book um, about particularly female sex addiction or love and relationship addiction, however you want to define your behaviors. Um, Fantastic book. Today we're going to venture out a little bit from the addiction realm and we're going to talk about a book called the Four Agreements. Um, this is written by Don Miguel Ru- Ruiz, and uh, it is a Toltec wisdom book. Um, so this is a code of conduct, basically. He offers a kind of us a code of conduct based on ancient Toltec wisdom that really helps to advocate for freedom from self-limiting beliefs that may cause... Uh, suffering or trial in someone's life. Um, That's how it got recommended to me. So this book was first published in 1997. It was recommended to me by a therapist a couple years into recovery. At that time in my recovery, I was really struggling with what I would call like people-pleasing behaviors. So I would radically alter or or make adjustments to what I wanted to do or what, what I was doing or saying based on what how I thought other people would perceive that or other people's expectations of me, at least what I thought were other people's expectations of me. That's kind of what people-pleasing is. Um, I, I wouldn't do the things I wanted to do. I would do a lot of things I didn't want to do just because that's what I felt was expected of me or because that's how... Um, I thought because I was afraid of what other people, how other people would respond to what I was doing. I couldn't prioritize myself. I couldn't really say no to things. And I was really struggling with that, not just in my family, but in relationships in general with friends, with employers, um, all sorts of areas of my life. I was struggling with this idea of people pleasing behaviors. And so my therapist recommended this book to me. Um, The premise or the idea, the way that I describe it, is that everyone lives their lives based on agreements that they have made with themselves, with others, with society, with God, or even with the universe in general. These agreements tell them who they are, how to behave, what is possible, and what is impossible. Ruiz makes the point really early on in the book that most of these agreements are things that we didn't choose. We didn't choose these agreements. Um, he calls kind of society or the the um, culture that we grow up and he calls the outside dream. 
So I'm going to read, this is from page four and five, just about how these agreements get made. He says, the outside dream, so this is a quote from the book, the outside dream hooks our attention and teaches us what to believe, beginning with the language that we speak. Language is the code for understanding and communication between humans. Every letter, every word in each language is an agreement. We call this page in a book. The word page is an agreement that we all understand. Once we understand the code, our attention is hooked and the energy is transferred from one person to another. It was not your choice to speak English. You didn't choose your religion or your moral values. They were already there before you were born. We never had the opportunity to choose what to believe or what not to believe. We never chose even the smallest of these agreements. We didn't even choose our own name. As children, we didn't have the opportunity to choose our beliefs, but we agreed with the information that was passed to us from the dream of the planet via other humans. The only way to store information is by agreement. The outside dream may hook our attention, but if we don't agree, we don't store that information. As soon as we agree, we believe it. And this is called faith. I I really liked that part of, of the book, and he, he, he expands quite a bit. This is just a small passage about it. But many times, I feel like many times people talk about being in control of their lives and how we are masters of our own destiny. And I believe a lot of that. And I also believe that we are born into a story that's already happening. Happening, We're born into situations and stories that were already there, as Ruiz says. This book really helped me see the idea that there were many things happening in my family system and in the world before I was born and even as I was born. And that those circumstances contributed to who I am and the inevitability of my life. And I would say the inevitability of my addictive behaviors. I hope that makes sense to you that yes, these are agreements that we made. A lot of times we didn't actually make the agreement. They were stories and things that were happening before we were born or maybe as we were born. Uh, for me, for instance, in my family there, right before I was born, the year before I was born, there was a we, my mom had a stillborn child and she carried her full tor- full term, sorry, and she died during childbirth. So when I was born, there was this belief, there was this fear. First of all, there was this huge fear that I wouldn't be born alive. The very first line in my baby book is she was born alive. And that set up a lot of circumstances around my birth, around my life that I I didn't agree to those things. They just happened because of the circumstances that were happening before I was born. We see that a lot. Um, In trauma, it has a name. It's called intergenerational trauma. This idea that someone along the line has experienced some sort of trauma. They have a belief system and some fears around that. And that gets transferred to the next generation, even though that generation didn't experience that trauma. Um, And so, and it has repercussions that run and ripple effects that run throughout the family. Um, I just recently watched the new Disney movie, Encanto. If you haven't watched that, that's a good representation of intergenerational trauma and how the experiences of the abuelo, abuela, abuela, sorry, the grandma um, gets transferred and her fear gets transferred from generation to generation. So these agreements that we make aren't always of our own choice. 
a few pages later, he talks about what do we do about that? If we didn't, if we made these agreements or we have, have these agreements or this belief system, how do we change it? He says, a quote from the book, that is why we need a great deal of courage to challenge our own beliefs. Because even if we know we didn't choose all of these beliefs, it is also true that we agreed to all of them. The agreement is so strong that even if we understand the concept of it not being true, we feel the blame, the guilt, and the shame that occur if we go against these rules. Just as the government has a book of law that rule the society's dream or our culture's dream, our belief system is the book of laws that rules our personal dream. All these laws exist in our mind. We believe them and the judge inside of us bases everything on these rules. The judge decrees and the victim suffers the guilt and punishment. But who says there is justice in this dream? True justice is paying only once for each mistake. True injustice is paying more than once for each mistake. So we're going to get back to that injustice in just a second. But I do think it takes a lot of courage in order to challenge the belief systems that we've inherited. The agreements that we've inherited from our parents, from our family, from our caregivers, whoever that is, it's a lot to be able to challenge some of those beliefs. It takes a lot of courage to do that. Now, back to this kind of idea of justice or injustice. This was really helpful for me personally. Again, back to the book. Um, this is on page 12. He says, how many times do we pay for one mistake? The answer is thousands of times. The human is the only animal on earth that pays a thousand times for the same mistake. The rest of the animals pay once for every mistake they make, but not us. We have a powerful memory. We make a mistake. We judge ourselves. We find ourselves guilty and we punish ourselves. If justice exists, that would be enough. We don't need to do it again. But every time we remember, we judge ourselves again. We are guilty again and we punish ourselves again and again and again. If we have a wife or a husband, he or she also reminds us of our mistake. So we can judge ourselves again, punish ourselves again, and find ourselves guilty again. Is this fair? He continues, how many times do we make our spouse, our children, or our parents pay for the same mistake? Every time we remember the mistake, we blame them again and send them all the emotional poison we feel at the injustice. And then we make them pay again for the same mistake. Is that justice? The judge in the mind is wrong because the belief system or the book of law is wrong. The whole dream is based on false law. 95% of the beliefs we have stored in our minds are nothing but lies and we suffer because we believe in all those lies. End quote. This was super enlightening to me at that time in my life, particularly I was punishing myself over and over and over and over again. I was constantly requiring others to pay for their mistakes thousands of times as well. This book is part of the motion, the uh, motivation to really start looking to forgive myself, try to forgive myself, find self-compassion, as well as work on my empathy skills for others. Uh, I'm just giving you little snips of this book, but there's a lot of really great more information where he expands on that idea of punishing ourselves too many times and that that's not just, that's not a just world where we punish ourselves over and over and over again for the same mistake. A few pages later on page 20, he says, in your whole life, nobody has ever abused you more than you have abused yourself. 
and the limit of your self-abuse is exactly the limit you will tolerate from someone else. If someone abuses you a little more than you abuse yourself, you will probably walk away from that person. But if someone abuses you a little less than you abuse yourself, you will probably stay in the relationship and tolerate it endlessly. That's a wake-up call. If you're tolerating bad abuse from people in relationship with you, it's probably because you're abusing yourself to that level. He goes on. If you abuse yourselves very badly, you can even tolerate someone who beats you up, humiliates you, and treats you like dirt. Why? Because in your belief system, you say, I deserve it. The person is doing me a favor by being with me. I'm not worthy of love and respect. I'm not good enough. We have the need to be accepted and to be loved by others, but we cannot accept and love ourselves. The more self-love we have, the less we will experience self-abuse. Self-abuse comes from self-rejection, and self-rejection comes from having an image of what it means to be perfect and never measuring up to that ideal. Our image of perfection is the reason we reject ourselves. It is why we don't accept ourselves the way we are and why we don't accept others the way that they are. This was, again, a huge wake-up call for me, just about the the level of self-love or self-compassion or self-abuse that I had for myself. I believe that. I believe that we tolerate abuse or mistreatment from others to the same level we mistreat or abuse ourselves. This is based on the agreements that we have made with ourselves about our own worthiness. I have a sign in my office at work that says, you can't hate yourself into loving yourself. Ruiz says that every agreement that we have takes up energy in our lives. Energy to keep the agreement. Some agreements work and don't cause issues for us, but some agreements put people in a state of fear and they can take a lot of energy from ourselves, leaving us feeling depleted and unworthy. This is one of the reasons that we hate ourselves is because we have this expectation of perfection, this agreement of perfection that we have somehow uh, incorporated into our belief system and it's something that we can't always fulfill. So... How do we, what are the agreements that we need to have? That's the first part of the book is about the agreements that we make or how we've gotten to the belief system that we have. And then the second part of the book or the main part of the book is about these four agreements that Ruiz tells us, that Toltec wisdom tells us can help us change the course of our lives. And that these agreements will dramatically impact the amount of happiness that we feel in our lives, regardless of whatever our external circumstances are. So we're going to spend just a few minutes on each agreement. I'm going to read to you a couple passages from the book on each agreement um, and talk about how they can, how we change them. So the first agreement that we, that Ruiz gives us is to be impeccable with your word. The essence of this agreement is to be accountable to yourself about what you say and do. So let me read two passages. So the first one is, why your word? The word is not just a sound or a written symbol. The word is a force. It is the power you have to express and communicate, to think, and thereby to create the events of your life. You can speak. What other animal on the planet can speak? The word is the most powerful tool you have as a human. It is the tool of magic. But like a sword with two edges, your word can create the most beautiful dream or your word can destroy everything around you. 
One edge is the misuse of your word, which creates a living hell. The other edge is the impeccability of your word, which will only create beauty, love, and heaven on earth. Depending upon how it is used, the word can set you free or it can enslave you even more than you know. All the magic you possess is based on your word. Your word is pure magic and misuse of your word is black magic. The word is so powerful that one word can change a life or destroy the lives of millions of people. Some years ago, one man in Germany, by the use of his word, manipulated a whole country of the most intelligent people. He led them into a world war with just the power of his word. He convinced others to commit the most atrocious acts of violence. He activated people's fears with the word, and like a big explosion, there was killing and war all around the world. All over the world, humans destroyed other humans because they were afraid of each other. Hitler's word, based on fear-generated beliefs and agreements, will be remembered for centuries. I love that idea about the power of the word. Our word is incredibly powerful. And when we use that word for good, he calls it white magic. And when we use that that word for evil, he calls it black magic. So that's why we start with the impeccability of our word. That's why we start with the word, because it is so powerful. So let's look at the word impeccable. He says, this is um, on page 31, a little bit further in the book. Now let us see what the word impeccability means. Impeccability means without sin. Impeccable comes from the Latin peccatus, which means sin. The im in impeccable means without. So impeccable means without sin. Religions talk about sin and sinners, but let's understand what it really means to sin. A sin is anything that you do which goes against yourself. Everything you feel or believe or say that goes against yourself is a sin. You go against yourself when you judge or blame yourself for anything. Being without sin is exactly the opposite. Being impeccable is not going against yourself. When you are impeccable, you take responsibility for your actions, but you do not judge or blame yourself. From this point of view, the whole concept of sin changes from something moral or religious to something common sense. Sin begins with rejection of yourself. Self-rejection is the biggest sin that you commit. In religious terms, self-rejection is a mortal sin, which leads to death. Impeccability, on the other hand, leads to life. And then just one more quote from the book about our first agreement. This is on page 32. Being impeccable with your word is the correct use of your energy. It means to use your energy in the direction of truth and love for yourself. If you make an agreement with yourself to be impeccable with your word, just with that intention, the truth will manifest through you and clean all the emotional poison that exists within you. But making this agreement is difficult because we have learned to do precisely the opposite. We have learned to lie as a habit of our communication with others and more importantly with ourselves. We have not been impeccable with our word. So there you go. The, the reason we start with being impeccable with our word is because the power of the word, the, how powerful words can be in our society. And, and then we start with being impeccable, meaning without sin. We don't use the word against ourselves by lying, um, by cheating, or by abusing ourselves. We use the word to help ourselves and to move forward. The suggestion that he gives us for how to measure our impeccability of the word is this. He says, you can measure the impeccability of your word by your level of self-love. 
How much you love yourself and how you feel about yourself are directly proportionate to the quality and integrity of your word. When you are impeccable with your word, you feel good, you feel happy and at peace. I love that idea. It Again, this was one of the most influential books for me in learning to love myself, forgive myself, and then to find empathy for others. So encourage you to suggest and look at how you can become impeccable with your word. The second agreement, don't take anything personally. The essence of this agreement is that others' reactions aren't about me. Whether someone likes me or what I've done or said or doesn't like me and what I've done or said, those reactions are not about me. People's responses are about them and their worldview or their dream, as Ruiz calls it, their perspective, their perceptions, their beliefs. Ruiz believes that anger, jealousy, envy, and even sadness can lessen or dissipate once an individual stops taking things personally. In order to live this agreement, you have to have a strong sense of self and a lessened reliance on others to be content and satisfied with your self-image. You can see why my therapist would have recommended this to me, right? About my people-pleasing behaviors. So let me give you a couple quotes here from this, this agreement. This is on page 48. Nothing other people do is because of you. It is because of themselves. All people live in their own dream, in their own mind, and they are in a completely different world from the one that you live in. When we take something personally, we make the assumptions that they know the, what is in our world, and we try to impose our world on their world. Even when a situation seems so personal, even if others insult you directly, it has nothing to do with you. What they say, what they do, and the opinions they give are according to the agreements they have in their own minds. Their point of view comes from all the programming they received during their domestication. Um, domestication is a word he uses a lot at the beginning of the book to talk about uh, how we gain our belief system. He calls it the domestication of the planet. Um, so he's just saying here that their programming and what they're viewing came from their domestication, just like mine came from my domestication. And when I take what they're saying personally, I'm taking their belief system and superimposing that over my belief system, which again is an act of self-abuse, right? I'm not being true to my own self-value or own self-love. A few pages later on fifty, page 50, he says, It is not important to me what you think about me, and I don't care what you think personally. I don't take it personally when people say, Miguel, you are the best. And I also don't take it personally when they say, Miguel, you are the worst. I know that when you are happy, you will tell me, Miguel, you are such an angel. But when you are mad at me, you will say, oh, Miguel, you are such a devil. You are so disgusting. How can you say those things? Either way, it does not affect me because I know what I am. I don't have the need to be accepted. I don't have the need to have someone tell me, Miguel, you are doing so good. Or how dare you do that? No, I don't take it personally. Whatever you think, whatever you feel, I know is your problem and not my problem. It is the way you see the world. It is nothing personal because you are dealing with yourself, not with me. Others are going to have their own opinion according to their belief system. So nothing they think about me is really about me, but is about them. I, this was, this is a hard one for me. This has always been a really hard one for me. And yet the more that I lean into this belief, the freer I do become. 
Um, I do a lot of speaking, not just on the podcast, but in other areas of my life. And I have people that come up to me on a regular basis and say things like, oh, that was so beautiful. And what you said really touched me and was amazing. And, and I would take that to heart and would love that. And then the very same event, the very same people that I was talking to, I might have someone come up to me and say things like, I, I can't ever agree with that. I don't believe that you're, this is a lie. This isn't true. And, and I, I said the exact same things, right? I said the exact same things. <laughs> they witnessed the exact same speech, the exact same response. They, I mean, the exact same words, they witnessed all of that. And yet one person loved it and one person hated it. And I would overemphasize the people that were struggling with what I was saying or hated what I was saying and and not emphasize the people that loved what I was saying. And this agreement, the more that I lean into it, has really helped me to realize the only thing I have to be accountable for and what I say and what I put out into the world is myself. And whether people resonate with what I'm saying, it's because of something inside of them that their belief system and their dreams and their agreements resonated with what I was saying. And if someone doesn't like what I'm saying, again, that's something inside of them, their agreements, their, um, their dream, how they view the world is, is not resonating with that. Or what I have said is challenging that belief system and and they don't want to challenge that belief system. Not taking things personally has really helped me in my own personal life and work to really lean into that and understand that people's, people are doing the best they can and that their reactions aren't about me, whether they liked it or not. A little bit later in that chapter on page 56, he says, don't take anything personally because by taking things personally, you set yourself up to suffer for nothing. And I, I that's really true for me. That has been really true for me. And then he also says, same page, Wherever you go, you will find people lying to you. And as your awareness grows, you will notice that you also lie to yourself. Do not expect people to tell you the truth because they lie. They also lie to themselves. You have to trust yourself and choose to believe or not to believe what someone says to you. When we really see other people as they are without taking it personally, we can never be hurt by what they say or do. Even if others lie to you, it is okay they are lying to you because they are afraid. They are afraid you will discover that they are not perfect. It is painful to take that social mask off. If others say one thing but do another, you are lying to yourself if you don't listen to their actions. But if you are truthful with yourself, you will save yourself a lot of emotional pain. Telling yourself the truth about it may hurt, but you don't need to be attached to the pain. Healing is on the way. So in that process also of not taking anything personally, we obviously have to look at people's actions and how their actions and their words line up. He concludes this section, as you make a habit of not taking anything personally, you won't need to place your trust in what others do or say. You will only need to trust yourself to make responsible choices. So I think one of the best ways that I've learned to not take anything personally is just to keep reminding myself over and over again that their reaction is not about me. Their reaction is about them and how they view the world and how things are going for them in their lives. It doesn't mean I can't help. It doesn't mean that I can't listen to their reaction, but it's not about me. It's about them. Okay, third agreement. 
as we come to kind of the last two things here. So our third agreement is to not make any assumptions. Don't make assumptions, he says. Now, for me, my ninth grade biology teacher wrote the word, uh, the very first day of class, wrote the word assume on the board, A-S-S-U-M-E. Then she drew lines to make three separate words, ass, you, and me. And then she told us, when you assume something, you make an ass out of you and me. <laughs> we were learning about the scientific method and how to ask questions in scientific ways. I've never forgotten that and can still see, still very clearly see the picture of ass, you, and me on the board. It's a really good memory, actually. And I loved her and loved that class. Um, but what I love about this concept is that when we make assumptions about others, we are taking away their freedom to feel and act how they want. In this way, Ruiz says that making assumptions leads to suffering. It creates stress and interpersonal conflict. This is because when we make assumptions, we actually believe those assumptions and we believe that it is a representation of the truth, which most times it is not. So here's a couple quotes from this section where he talks about making assumptions. He says, oh, this is on page 66. Making assumptions in our relationship is really asking for problems. Often we make the assumption that our partners know what we think and that we don't have to say what we want. We assume they are going to do what we want because they know us so well. If they don't do what we assume they should do, we feel hurt and say, you should have known. The classic one that I hear from this one is always, if you really loved me, you would know blah, 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 blah. Or you would have done blah, 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 blah. Right? And so just so we know, that's a narcissistic trait. That we assume people should know us and love us. And if they did love us and know us, then they would know exactly how to care for us and tend to us and do what needs to be done. It's a narcissistic trait because it's a very immature um, paradigm. We, we as adults, we have to be able to take care of ourselves and we have to know our needs and be able to ask for our needs to be met and know what we want and be able to talk about those things and not assume that others will just do it for us. When we do assume that others will do it for us, then we're being childish because children really are helpless in a lot of ways and we do have to do things for them. So on the next page, he said, it's very interesting how the human mind works. We have the need to justify everything, to explain and understand everything in order to feel safe. We have millions of questions that need answers because there are so many things that the reasoning mind cannot explain. It is not important if the answer is correct, just that the answer itself makes us feel safe. This is why we make assumptions. If others tell us something, we make assumptions. If they don't tell us something, we make assumptions to fulfill our need to know and to replace the need to communicate and to feel safe. Even if we hear something and we don't understand, we make assumptions about what it means and then believe those assumptions. We make all sorts of assumptions because we don't have the courage to ask questions. Is that you? Do you have the courage to ask questions in your relationship? Are you curious? Do you approach things from a place of curiosity or do you make assumptions? Most of us, especially if we come from an addictive system or are an addict ourselves, we make assumptions rather than seek clarity. And so he says a few pages later on 78, the way to keep yourself from making assumptions is to ask questions. 
Make sure the communication is clear. If you don't understand, ask. Have the courage to ask questions until you are clear as you can be. And even then, do not assume you know all there is to know about a given situation. Once you hear the answer, you will not have to make assumptions because you will know the truth. Also, find your voice to ask for what you want. Everybody has the right to tell you no or yes, but you always have the right to ask. Likewise, everybody has the right to ask you and you have the right to say yes or no. If you don't understand something, it is better for you to ask and to be clear instead of making an assumption. The day you stop making assumptions, you will communicate cleanly and clearly, free of emotional poison. Without making assumptions, your word becomes impeccable. I love that last line. I'm going to say it one more time. The day you stop making assumptions, you will communicate cleanly and clearly, free of emotional poison. Without making assumptions, your word becomes impeccable. So a lot of times I work with my clients, both coaching and therapy, about about not making assumptions and about approaching life from a place of curiosity rather than from a defended position or from um, a place of offense even. And so asking questions, being clear about things is important. Okay, the last agreement, the fourth agreement, and to conclude this, this part of the book is always do your best. Always do your best. Now that's a high standard. I know that. Doing your best is a high standard. And I love how Ruiz talks about doing your best. He says, under any circumstance, always do your best. No more and no less. But keep in mind that your best is never going to be the same from one moment to the next. Everything is alive and changing all the time. So your best will sometimes be high quality and other times it will not be as good. When you wake up refreshed and energized in the morning, your best will be better than when you're tired at night. Your best will be different when you are healthy as opposed to sick or sober as opposed to drunk. Your best will depend on whether you are feeling wonderful and happy or upset, angry, and jealous. In your everyday moods, your best can change from one moment to another, from one hour to the next, from one day to another. Your best will also change over time. As you build the habit of the four new agreements, your best will become better than it used to be. Just do your best in any circumstance in your life, he says. I, I love this agreement of just doing your best because it's about acceptance. It's about self-acceptance. It's about this idea that... In this moment, right now, I am going to do my best. In 20 minutes, my best might look different because I've expelled some energy. And so in that moment, I will do my best. And in four hours, that might look different. In five days, that might look different. In 25 days, that might look different. And it doesn't matter. The idea here is that every day, in every circumstance, wherever I'm at, I'm going to do my best and I'm going to let that be enough. I'm not going to judge myself from today, 20 minutes to 40, 40 minutes to an hour and say, oh, I'm so bad because I did better an hour ago. No, that's not how it's going to be. I'm going to allow myself in that moment to do my best and let that be enough. He says a few pages later on page 81, when you do your best, you learn to accept yourself, but you have to be aware and learn from your mistakes. Learning from your mistake means you practice. Look honestly at the result and keep practicing. This increases your awareness. 
Doing your best really doesn't feel like work because you enjoy whatever you are doing. You know you're doing your best when you are enjoying the action or doing it in a way that will not have negative repercussions for you. You do your best because you want to do it, not because you have to do it, not because you're trying to please the judge and not because you are trying to please other people. Again, you can see why my therapist would recommend this to me if I was having problems with people-pleasing behavior, right? This is about acceptance of yourself and not judging yourself, right? But increasing your awareness, looking at your results and allowing yourself to do your best in that moment. I love that agreement. He expands a little bit later um, where he says, we don't need to know or prove anything. Just to be, to take a risk and enjoy your life is all that matters. Say no when you want to say no. Say yes when you want to say yes. You have the right to be you. You can only be you when you do your best. When you don't do your best, you are denying yourself the right to be you. That's a seed that you should really nurture in your mind. You don't need knowledge or great philosophical concepts. You don't need the acceptance of others. You express your own unique divinity by being alive and by loving yourself and others. I love that. You can only be you when you do your best. Not when you're holding up some impossible standard. Not when you're trying to judge yourself or others. You can only be you when you do your best. So now he puts these all together and he says the first three agreements will only work if you do your best. Don't accept that you will always be able to be impeccable with your word. Your routine habits are too strong and firmly rooted in your mind, but you can do your best. Don't expect that you will never take anything personally. Just do your best. Don't expect that you will never make another assumption, you, but you can certainly do your best. By doing your best, the habits of misusing your word, taking things personally, and making assumptions will become weaker and less frequent with time. You don't need to judge yourself, feel guilty, or punish yourself if you cannot keep these agreements. If you're doing your best, you will feel good about yourself, even if you can still make assumptions, still take things personally, and are still not impeccable with your word. And so I love that he sets this standard. Doing our best is not perfection. Doing our best is allowing ourselves in the moment to do the very best that we can and then to move forward and allowing ourselves in the next moment to do the very best that we can. Not holding up some impossible standard or judging ourselves, but doing our best. So these are the four agreements. Number one, be impeccable with your word. Number two, don't take anything personally. Number three, don't make assumptions. And number four, always do your best. Now, the last part of the book, he talks about the Toltec path to freedom. How do we, how do these things work to make our path free and make ourselves free? And I just am going to share just one brief um, passage here from, from this part. Because he talks a lot about um, I should set this up a little bit better. <laughs> he talks a lot about emotions and how we, um, our emotions can get the better of us and that we need to learn to process um, and need to learn how to get control of our emotions and not let our emotions rule our lives. Um, I was talking to a friend about that over, over the weekend, actually, and 
she was just talking about, I just, you know, I just want to be able to express my emotions and live fully in my emotions and, and allow them to be there. And, and I said, yeah, that would be great. That's like a two-year-old, right? <laughs> Two-year-olds live fully in their emotions a hundred percent of the time. And that's why we call it the terrible twos. And that's why as two-year-olds, we need to learn to help them understand their emotions, but not let their their lives be ruled by their emotions all the time. And he talks a lot about that. That path to freedom is that he calls it the spiritual warrior or the ability to control our emotions. He says the problem with most people is that they lose control of their emotions. It is the emotions that control the behavior of the human, not the human who controls the emotions. When we lose control, we say things that we don't want to say and we do things that we don't want to do. That is why it is so important to be impeccable with your word and to become a spiritual warrior. We must learn to control the emotions so we have enough personal power to change our fear-based agreements, escape from hell, and create our own personal heaven. And then he talks a little bit more, like how do we become a spiritual warrior? And, and he gives some of that um, information at the end of the book on, on how to make that happen. So... I hope that this was helpful for you today. This book is has grown to be really important to me. It's a quick read. It's about 100 pages, maybe a little bit, a um, few more than 100 pages. But if you also listen to it, which I still do on a quarterly basis, I will pull this out and listen to it because I can do it in an hour, maybe an hour and a half, um, and really remind myself of these things and these principles over and over and over again because that's how we change right? We do these things over and over and over and over and over again, and they become rituals and they become habits and they become ways and philosophies that we live in our life. I would, I really, really grew from reading and studying this book and have continued as I've continued to grow in my own personal recovery. I really encourage you to read it and to spend some time understanding how it applies to you because I think it applies differently for every person. So I hope that's helpful for you in our Worth Reading series. Uh, Just a reminder that no matter where you're at in life, if you're not impeccable with your word or if you're making assumptions every day or taking things personally or if you don't feel like you're doing your best, no matter where you're at, you are worth recovery. You're worth the effort that it takes to make recovery happen in your life. I know that. I promise you that. And if you don't, you can rely on me until you do for yourself. Because this is about self-love and self-compassion and self-acceptance. No matter where you're at today, I hope you remember that. Remember also that I think about you, I pray for you, and I love you. Until next time, Amy. stuff. The mission of Worth Recovery is to dispel shame and build hope in the lives of women struggling with and recovering from sex addiction. I am not associated with any 12-step group, religious organization, or therapeutic clinic. I am an addict sharing my own experiences and recovery.